0: God's grace is indeed amazing, displayed toward us in the death of His Son, Christ, on the cross. Given to us in His invitation to us, where He brings us to Himself and cleanses us and washes us. Gives us things that we certainly do not deserve and could could not earn. We depend upon the grace of God. Isn't God good? By the way, that's a recurring theme here I'm going to ask, and I would appreciate your answer. I thank you for that, but isn't God good? He is good indeed, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's grace. That's grace. But as we start the sermon this morning, I want to ask, have you ever felt abandoned by God? Have you ever been in a place because of experience, because of difficulties, circumstances, where you just felt like either God was asleep, or He wasn't paying attention, or He didn't care? Have you ever had those times in your life when you just did not really feel or sense the presence of God? Here's the question. Does God abandon, abandon people? Now, I changed the title of this sermon. I had a different title when I was planning and prepping the, the, the series. But in the, in the last week and a half, I've had two really challenging conversations. One was from a pastor who was about at wit's end. He's tired, he's worn out, he's frustrated, he's going through struggles at his church. Attendance is down, numbers are down. They don't know how long they're going to be able to keep the church going. And he just looked at me and said, I, th- I think God's just left us. He said, I don't, I don't have any sense that God's active or working in the life of the church. And then in a later conversation with another person, I was talking to a, a mom uh, in, uh, in, in this town, in the West End actually. Who, uh, who's, who was having financial troubles, having relationship problems, having problems with family, uh, multiple issues. And her statement was, it just seems like God doesn't care. I don't know what to do. How do I make God care? It seems like God doesn't care. And I don't know if you've ever been in that place or not, but I can think of no worse place than to feel abandoned by God. So here's the question that I want us to consider this morning. Does God... Abandon people. And you may ask, why in the world? <laughs> Doesn't that sound like an uplifting Sunday morning sermon? Why in the world are we talking about this? Well, when in our studies, we're looking at, in Micah, chapter 3 through 5. The middle part, by the way, you need to pray for me. That's three chapters we won't cover in one sermon. Hope you all brought lunch. But when we look at Micah, chapter 3, verse 5. No, uh, chapter 5. Verse 3, it, it, it depends on which translation you use. And I've got to tell you, I use the ESV, the NASV, the NIV, the NLT. And so there have been different translations that we've been using. We're primarily drawing from the NLT. But just in the ESV, it says, therefore, he, God, shall give them up. That's his nation. That's the people that Micah is prophesying through. He shall give them up. He shall abandon them. He shall release and separate from them until the time. When she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return. And So I I read that passage and I think about what's going on in here. And I want us to to explore this today. Because where Micah starts is not with God abandoning his people. He starts with his people abandoning him. In Micah chapter 3, again, if you have your copy of the scriptures, I would encourage you to turn there. Uh, uh, we find a, a very a, a accusative passage, I guess you'd, you'd say. It, it's, a, it's a passage of judgment. You'll recall in the passage, Micah has already prophesied against false prophets and said, God is the strength of the Lord is upon me. His spirit fills me that I may come and actually point out the sins of, the, of your sins before a holy God. And that's what he does in this passage. He starts with simply the sins of the people. Who are they? They're the leaders and the rulers. They're the prophets and the priests. And what are they accused of? They're accused of injustice. He says, listen, you leaders of Israel, you're the one who are supposed to know right from wrong. He goes on to say, I said, here, you heads of Jacob, rulers of the house house of Israel, you're the ones who are supposed to know justice. Is it not for you to know justice? And they were being unjust. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, "You're the very ones who hate good, and love evil. You hate good, and love evil. Yes, you eat my people's flesh. You strip the skin, or you strip off their skin, and you break their bones, and you chop them up like meat for the cooking pots." Very graphic language that Micah is using. My mom got to spend some time with my mom yesterday, and uh, and I was actually talking about this very passage. And we were reminiscing about preparing chickens to eat. Do you guys know where fried chicken comes from? When we were kids, we raised chickens. Now, we had two kinds. We had laying hens, and we had fryers. And the fryers came from hens that stopped laying, (laughs) basically. But we we had hens that that had names, and we... (laughs) (laughs) We would feed them and care for them, protect them from bobcats and possums and things like that until it came time for the cooking pot. Now, I don't know if you've ever prepared a chicken for cooking. My wife warned me not to go into too much detail here. But you put the animal to death. And then you pluck the skin off of it. Uh, No, you pluck the feathers off of it. All of the feathers down to where it's just a nasty looking thing. And then you clean it, you cut into it, and you take out the part that's not edible, and then you start cutting up the parts that are, and you chop them up, and you'll chop through meat, and you will chop through bones. And you throw them in a pot, and you consume them. And Micah says, listen, some of you people are the leaders of this nation. God has put you in place or allowed you to be in place, whether it's in the palace or whether it's in the seats of judgment as magistrates, and you're supposed to be executing justice, and you're not. More than just being apathetic or being slack in some way, a wastrel, you are intentionally using your position for your gain. You're going to gain at the cost of your people. And they were unjust, and they were greedy, and they were not fulfilling at the very least. What God had placed them to do. Now how did the nation of Israel get in this shape? Well, you go just a little bit further in the passage of chapter 3. One of the reasons at least has to be the failure of the prophets and the priests to convey the true word of the Lord. He goes on in verse 5. says, this is what the Lord said. You false prophets are leading my people astray. False prophets leading my people astray. How are they doing that? You promise peace for those who give you food but you declare war on those who refuse to feed you. Your rulers make decisions based on bribes. You priests teach God's laws only for a price. You prophets won't prophesy unless you are paid. I heard one preacher preaching on this passage and he said they had become for-profit prophets. They were working for profit They were working to line their own own hearts. They were working out of their own greed. Their hearts and affections were wrong. I want you to to hear again what he said in verse 2. You're the very ones who do what? You hate good. You love evil. He speaks of their heart. Listen to me, you leaders of Israel. Verse 9. You hate justice. And you twist all that is right. Like we do so often. They were living and working and going through life. Trying to get ahead, but let's be clear, they had abandoned God in their affections. They were no longer loving God. They were no longer seeking to please Him. They were no longer even seeking to know Him or hear what He really had to say. And because they had abandoned God in their affections, in their heart, they had abandoned obedience to God in their behaviors. So the law of God, the rule of God, it did not matter anymore. What God says is just not important. And I have to tell you that when I read about them, I think about us. I think about me. The tendency that we have so often just to think about our sin, that we know is sin. We know it wouldn't please a holy God or it doesn't please a holy God or it's a contradiction of God's word, what he commands and what he expects when he shows us what righteousness is. And yet we just kind of diminish the seriousness of it. It's just the way I am. It's how I was raised. It's the world I grew up in. It's how everybody else is. I'm not as bad as some people. And I may not do this or I may do that, but I don't do all this other stuff. And we get comparative and we look around. Instead of looking at God for his standard of righteousness, we look at one another. And we look at people even who don't know God. And somehow we forget the seriousness of sin, even though we're happy to point it out when others sin. Somehow we've forgotten how terrible an offense is sin is to a holy God. And so I want to just kind of begin with an application point. You and I need to make sure that we resist the tendency to minimize the seriousness of sin. As a matter of fact, if you're writing that down, you can write down the seriousness of my sin. We need to make sure that we recognize how egregious every sin is to a holy God. And again, the the point is sin is serious. <coughs> the Micah doesn't tell them, he doesn't say, you yeah, know, you guys just aren't, you gotta improve. Here's seven steps. Yeah, you, know, you guys gotta take these four steps and get better. You know, you're doing okay, but we're not where we need to be. He didn't do that at all. He says, You're evil, your affections have turned away from God, and therefore you do evil. In verse ten, murder and corruption, blood and iniquity. They are building their nation on the blood, shed blood of, of others. No sanctity of life. Iniquity, evil sin. I want to make just a point here because he keeps talking about not only their behaviors, but he identifies the source of their behavior. Where does sin come from? Why do we sin? Why do we disobey? Why do we do what we want to do rather than acknowledging God? It's because sin at its core is a heart attitude against God. Because it is what's in the heart that comes out of our mouth. It is what's in the heart that comes out of our hand. It's what's in the heart that shapes our behavior Sin is rebellion against God's authority, but it's grounded in a rejection of his love. Are you with me there? Sin is a rebellion against God's authority. God, you're God. You're the creator. You're the ruler. You're the master of the universe. And how do we get to that point? Because even though he has displayed his love toward us, many times we just simply say, not interested. Not interested. I forget which theologian, I think it was Augustine, who said, you're going to love one of two things. You're going to love God or you're going to love yourself supremely. You're going to love God supremely or you're going to love yourself supremely. And sin always starts with a heart not in love with God, not responsive to the love of God that comes to us. And so when you and I think about God and we think about Christianity and we think about righteousness and, and, and being who God calls us to be and who God intends us to be, and we think about behaviors and and rules and and the law of God, Uh, we need to recognize that uh, we need to not neglect our hearts, our hearts' attitude, our affections, when we're seeking to be those people who please God. Behavior always flows from our beliefs and our affections. Christianity is always more than rule-keeping. It's not defined by keeping rules. I don't know how many times I've talked to people who say, well, I go to church or I give or I taught Sunday school. I got a letter one time from a lady who wanted to, to have a specific role in the church and she gave me a list of her accomplishments. I've done this, I've done this. I've done, Basically a resume, a curriculum vitae of her experience of life in the church with no mention of the Lord Jesus Christ at all. No mention of what it means to be saved. No mention of what it means to experience grace. And I was able to have follow-up conversations with her. And I kept turning that conversation back. God, tell me about your walk with Christ. I, I do this and I do that and I do this. And I, and I serve here and I've been serving here. And this is kind of my gift and my calling. I understand that. Thank you. That is not the question. Here's the question. Do you know Jesus? Do you love him? Are you walking with him? Are you listening to him? Are you fellowshipping with him? Do you yearn to know him more? Is the every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before? Is that characteristic of your life? Or have we diminished Christianity to just rules that we break and then excuse? Sin. Calvin Coolidge was a very taciturn president. He was known for a few words. He and I have very little in common. But he would never use five words when one would do. All right. Oh, And so he went to church one time. This is a anecdotal, but I love the story. He went to church one time and his wife, he was a former president of the United States. His, his wife said, how was church? He said, good. What did the preacher preach on? Sin. Well, what did he say? It's bad. If I were very simply making this sermon outline, I would start with sin is bad. And before we blow that off as some sort of toddler class Sunday school lesson, folks, sin's bad. Your sin, my sin, the sins of Israel, the sins of the United States, the sins of every nation, is an offense to our Creator who loves us, who created us, who designed us. Who has a plan for our lives who wants to be in total and complete union with us sin is bad and there are consequences to sin so but what's our original question does god abandon us well let's let's ask it in another way how does god respond to sin you can you can do this right you know how to answer that question it's certainly in our text every time we have a condemnation we have a therefore You're doing this, therefore. You're doing this, therefore. You're doing this, therefore. God responds to sin with punishments to the leader and rulers. Verse 4, then God, therefore, God will not give you help in times of trouble. Verse 6, the prophets, therefore, the night will close around you. And he goes into more detail. Verse 12, the most horrendous against all of the people and because of the sin, this Zion, the city of Jerusalem, this place is supposed to be marked out as the place of God, he says it's going to be plowed under like a field. Man, they were proud of the city. David's city. It used to be Salem, and God gave it to them as Jerusalem. The walls were built. The temple was built by Solomon. It was the center and the place where the Shekinah glory of God had shone. And because of their abandonment of God, God says, I'm going to let you go. And in in your city is going to be plowed under. Plowed under. And even later in chapter 5, verse 1, when he talks about the humiliation that's coming to them, he said, that it will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. And that phrasing is such, it's it just vivid phrasing. Uh, number one, for a ruler to be struck at all was a supreme insult. It was humiliation. If, if the one who is the king, the ruler, cannot protect himself, who's their protection for But have you ever been slapped? And you don't have to answer that question. I have. I have. I've been slapped several times. One time wasn't my fault. I have an identical twin brother. <laughs> who had evidently offended a young lady that I went to college with. And one day when I was rock, walking in front of Plyler Home Hall over at Furman University down the sidewalk there close to the mall, she's walking the other way and I'm ready to greet her. Hey! And she walks up and slaps me. And it was a good one. And I was just in shock. Number one, you know, the immediate response, all the emotion bowls up. And the immediate response, and then I'm like, I've got to understand what's going on because this is out of the blue. And then she took a second look and said, oh, you're not Mark. <laughs> but to be slapped or to be struck in the face is a sign biblically of being humiliated. Of demonstrating your inability to protect yourself. Of being open to the abuse of another. It's a humbling, humbling experience. God punishes sin. And every time we have this list of charges that Micah gives, he gives a, therefore, there is a consequence. When you leave God, there is a consequence. If you just look at chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, listen to how he describes this. Why are you now screaming in terror? You have no king to lead you? Have your wise people all died? Pain grips you like a woman in childbirth. Ride and groan like a woman in labor, you people of Jerusalem. For now, you must leave this city. You're going to be taken out of Jerusalem. You're going to live in the open country. You'll soon be sent into exile you'll be sent to distant Babylon. This is a prophecy of the punishment of God against the sin of his people against Jerusalem. And this is in the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom the Assyrians come in and they conquer and they disperse the people. And specifically to Judah, he says, Babylon's coming now. That's a miracle in itself. Babylon was a, a an international power, but it wasn't a world power like Egypt was or like Assyria was. It would be another hundred years before the Babylonians... Reduced the Assyrians and the others to, to insignificance. And they're the ones who came. Nebuchadnezzar, they're the ones who came and, and conquered Babylon. A very clear statement over a 100 years before it took place. Now, we don't have to go very far to know that a holy God punishes sin. A just God judges sin. Are you with me there? Are we good with that? It's really easy to say that up here, but then we think about it in our lives and we think about it in theirs. So I want to summarize in chapter 3 primarily a few verses in chapter 4 and then a couple of verses in chapter 5. I want to summarize God's response to sin. The first thing that God does that we see in the text is He humbles us. He brings about circumstances. He brings about pain. He brings about punishment. Not because He got His feelings hurt. You do understand that. God is not a man like that. God is not capricious. Uh, But He does it because of His holiness and His justice. And honestly, He does it because of His love for us. He brings about consequences, painful ones, in order that we will understand completely our need of Him. Our inability to save ourselves. The goodness of God we see through His punishment. But also, the heart of His punishment is Separation from God. I read to you before. I want to read it again in the the New Living Translation. Point two on your outline. The consequence of sin is separation from God. Chapter five, verse three. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies. If you go back to chapter three, where he's talking to the rulers and leaders, they will cry to the Lord. The Lord will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they... Have made their deeds evil. He hides his face because they've made their deeds evil. Listen to me sin is our choice to reject God, to abandon him. And sin always has consequences. My grandma used to say, quoting scripture, be sure your sins will find you out. You might think you can get away with something for a while, but God knows all things and sins have consequences. Be sure your sins. We'll find you out. That was a little scary for an eight-year-old kid, but it's truth. Stuff that we need to know. Sin is our choice to reject God, to abandon Him. Sin always has consequences. And the most significant is the alienation that sin causes between you and God. Don't miss this. The most significant, the most important consequence of sin is what Isaiah said in the same time that Micah was preaching. To the same audience that Micah is preaching to. In Isaiah 59 verse 2 he says, Behold, your sins have separated between you and your God. His prophets had abandoned him and so he's letting them go. And he's not communicating to them. He's cutting off communication. He would have separation from them now i want us to explore this question and we'll do it fairly quickly but i think it's very important when we abandon god when we turn our back upon on him when we do not love him even though he loves us when we refuse his affection if you will he lets us go do you guys remember the whole series we did on the wrath of god from romans chapter 1 what is the recurring phrase where God shows himself and he reveals himself through nature and through his word. He's revealed himself to his son. And he makes himself known and he makes his ways known. And yet they suppress the truth and they say, that's not right, we're not going to do that. The Bible says in three different passages, three different verses, specifically the same phrase over again. God lets them go. God turns them over. God turns them over. I do want you to know that sin comes between a relationship with you and God. And if you're here and you're not a believer, you've never been to church, you've never been saved, you inherited sin from Adam as by one man's sin entered the world. So death has passed on to all men for all have sinned. But even in your own flesh, your own willfulness, you have disobeyed God and it is a, a, a break, a separation from you. And the scripture is abundantly clear. We have a holy God who is just, he always does what's right. He's loving, and he's kind, and he's gracious, and he's just. And sin, a good judge, has to judge sin. Sin must be punished. And if we hold on to our sin, that sin separates us. We are separated from God. And not only from now, but from now to eternity. We talked about that last week. Are you with me? It's a scary, scary place to be sin separates from god now what about to the believer you guys ever sin we're we're saved right saved by grace and grace was free it cost god but it's free to us and every time we sin God's grace abounds and it covers our sin. And the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover of our sin and to wash us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we don't have to do anything but trust and believe. Uh, we, we We can walk and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean we get a pass? Sin's okay as long as we do the best we can. Guys, listen to me. I talk to a lot of Christians that struggle with this. It's important. The Christian life isn't just, okay, I'm just doing the best I can. And I want to trust God because he's good and he's kind and he's gracious. And surely he knows me. He knows, I mean, that ought to scare us. He really does know us. He doesn't know what we want. He's not a Facebook stalker. All right? he, he knows what's going on in the heart. He knows really what's going on and where our affections are. And believers, sin will not take you out of the palm of God's hands. You with me there? Nothing can take you out. He saved you. He keeps you. You're his. The blood of Christ has been applied to your account. It's marked paid in full, and you can't jump out either. He's got you. When you are saved, when you are made new in the Lord Jesus Christ, he makes you into a new creation, and sin does not unmake you. You're with me? But let me tell you what you can do. We have this terrible ability to grieve the Spirit of God. We have this horrible ability to turn our affections away from God and you know, onto the pleasures of the world or to uh, personal advancement or whatever it is that consumes you. it. Maybe like the song earlier, you know, addictions and failures, but we just kind of struggling and, and, and we we'll do better some and we don't do better other times. But when we turn our affections away from God, it creates relational distance. The word theologically that we typically use is fellowship. Yes, I have a relationship with God, but my fellowship becomes broken. So let me ask. Believer, I'm talking to you. If you're not a believer, I'm not talking to you. Believer, I'm talking to you. How is your relationship with Jesus? When's the last time you talked to him? And I don't mean a prayer text. Lord, get me through this intersection without having a wreck. Father, get me through the day. There's a place for those. But that's not what I'm talking about. When's the last time you just opened the Word of God and said, I want to know more about you? And I'm willing to sit here and read and meditate and pray and study until I know more about you. Or you listen to a message or you engage in a Bible study or you just get on your knees and you just say, Jesus, this is our time. Just me and you. It's just our time. When's the last time? By the way, believers, most of us don't do this. You need to start. Write a letter to him. You can prepare what to say. Yeah, he knows what you're going to say, and he knows how you're going to prepare it. But the benefit is to you. As you think through, I'm approaching the throne of grace, God Almighty in His heaven, and you begin to draft out who he is and how grateful you are. And you rehearse and you remember what he has done. I want you to understand that sin bad, God mad, there is punishment for sin. But sin always stems from a misplaced affection, a wrong love. And God's response is to humble us, to make us aware of our need for Him. And the consequence of sin that we have to walk through is either a broken relationship. Some of you, some of you have no relationship with God at all. It was broken in Adam, and you've not come to Him to be born into His family, to be made new. We'll get to that in a minute. But for believers you have a relationship in this broken fellowship now there are a lot of illustrations i could give but i'm done giving personal illustrations when he talks about making someone you love mad but do you remember what it's like to make someone you love mad and the impact it had upon your relationship we see this in our nation when we abandon him he lets us go when we see Uh, God's consequences against sin, we see it in our nation and in every nation. We too have injustice and leaders that are more concerned about themselves than those they are to lead. We have those who simply have no affection for God and who are building our nation on the blood of hundreds of thousands of babies killed through abortion. And through other laws and through other acts that reject the clear teaching of God's word. And to be sure, for nations as for people, God judges sin. That's true of this nation, it's true of every nation, but I want you to note something. The language in this text, in one sense, is very special to Israel. This is God's specific message to His chosen people. And not every nation can read so clearly the hand and the axe of God as a punishment for sin. I have a pastor friend who lives in Gulfport, Mississippi, and he said, you guys remember Hurricane Katrina? After Hurricane Katrina, on a radio broadcast, he said, Hurricane Katrina happened because we allowed gambling boats to park along the coast of the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Well, now, that may be his sense, and it may be his reasoning, but you can't with any authority be that specific. Why is this different? Why is this the, the uh, exception There is a sense, a general sense, which this applies to every nation and every person. We live in a fallen world. We deserve everything bad that happens to us and far more. However, we need to be careful when we try to say that this disaster happened because of this specific sin. Israel is a nation unlike any other nation in two respects, at least in two respects. But Israel was chosen by God, established by God, regardless of their faithfulness or their rebellion. He said, I love you because I love you, not because you've earned it. And he gave them a specific task. Israel, Judah, the Jews had a special purpose from God. And that was to bring forth the Messiah, the Savior of the world. No other nation has ever been used for that purpose. And then specifically we have God speaking through prophets like Micah and through Micah specifically to interpret history and to speak clearly to the specific situations that we're facing. The Assyrians coming from the north. He told them they're coming, they came. Babylon coming to take over uh, Jerusalem and to disperse the people. Exile, separation, moved out to the country. He told them specifically it was coming, and it came. Now it's very important, I think, that we grasp and that we understand that sin has consequences. And so let's go ahead and have the invitation and dismiss. Now's a good time, right? And I don't want to be too trite here. I really don't want to be too tongue-in-cheek. I'm not a doom and gloom preacher. As a matter of fact, I'm about as optimistic as as anybody I know. And I'm about as hopeful and as much of a cheerleader for what God is doing and for people as anybody I know. But we can't get to the good news until we recognize the need for the good news. Here's the good news. This doesn't seem hopeful. We sin, we abandon God. God punishes, it creates separation from God, but that's not the end of the story. It's an essential part, but it isn't the end. The main emphasis of chapter four and chapter five is how God rescues and redeems his people. God wanted separation, but not divorce. There is hope. There is more to come. Verse Chapter 4, verse 10, the end of the verse. But the Lord will rescue there. He will redeem you. Right after he told them Babylon was coming, the Lord will rescue there. He will redeem you from the grip of your enemies. Micah tells of the coming day of hope. In the coming day, I will gather together those who are lame and those who have been exiles and those who I have filled with grief. Those who are weak and those who will survive, there will survive a a remnant. Those who are exiles will become a strong nation. Then I, the Lord, will rule from Jerusalem as their king forever. As for you, Jerusalem, the citadel of God's people, your royal might and power, you'll come, will come back to you. The kingship will be restored to my precious Jerusalem. And he goes on how he assembles the exiles, how people from every nation will, will flock to them. And you have to understand when he's talking about these prophecies prophecies when it's declared sometimes you have an immediate fulfillment sometimes there's a delayed fulfillment and sometimes there's a fulfillment we haven't seen yet even in Micah itself he prophesied the Assyrians would conquer the north and it was almost like an announcement they're coming because in just a few short years they were there and the north was gone 722 BC he prophesied to Judah you will experience the consequences of your rebellion unless you repent and Assyria started coming down. They got all the way down through Lachish and then Hezekiah prayed to God, repented, led his people into repentance and they were rebuffed. He sent them back out. But a hundred years later, just over a hundred years later, Babylon came just like he'd prophesied and took the people into exile. We're gonna see a prophecy here in just a moment about the one who comes to bring hope and in, in one of the most famous passages in Micah is, is that the Savior's coming from Bethlehem Ephratah, that prophecy is fulfilled about 600 years later and then there are prophecies here about the coming kingdom where God establishes his rule and reign and that's a prophecy that we continue to look for its completion now I want you to look at the difference that Parks read earlier between what he says about Jerusalem at the end of chapter 4 and what he says at the beginning of chapter 5 I'm sorry chapter 3 and chapter 4 because of the sins of his people, verse 12. He says, Mount Zion will be plowed like an open field. Jerusalem will be reduced to ruins. A thicket will grow on the heights where the temple now stands. That's about as bad as it gets. You with me? But what does the very next verse say? In the last days, the mountain of the Lord house. This is the, 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 the mount upon which the temple is built. Will be the highest of them all. The most important place on earth. It will be raised above other hills. And people from all over the world will stream there to worship. If you just summarize that up, you go from being plowed like a field to being ultimately exalted. God delivers. He protects. People of all nations will be turned to God. So how does this rescue, how does this redemption come to pass? In chapter five, verse two, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you're only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come to you. On my behalf. Is there any doubt in anyone's mind that he's talking about the Messiah coming to be born of a virgin? Coming to be born in the small town of Bethlehem. Isn't that just like God? Could have come from Jerusalem. Good history there. Could have come from some big exalted city or some big exalted place. But no, he comes from a place of insignificance. Not really insignificant. Just a small place. David was born there. And from there comes the Savior A ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past. I want you to know if you look at that phrase, that is the only time in all of Scripture this phrase applies to a person. Jesus is the only one who's described, whose origins are from the distant past and yet will come to you on my behalf. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. The third point on your outline is very simple is that our rescue, our redemption, and our peace are found only in Jesus Christ. That's the promise. That's the promise in in verse five. He will be their peace. In him, their peace will be embodied. In him, their peace will be accomplished. In him, their peace will be secured. There's nothing left for them but repentance. There's no hope in themselves. There's only hope in Christ. And so I think we can kind of sum up Micah's message by saying this we sin and we can't diminish the impact and the significance of sin God is patient aren't you glad God is merciful God is long suffering and yet he does not turn his back on sin forever he will not allow sin to go on without consequences forever sin always brings about consequences and so god punishes sin he punishes it through humbling us to draw us back to him our need for him he punishes it we our experience the consequence of sin is a break in our relationship and you may be here this morning and you've never known a relationship with christ you know about him you know his name you've been to church but you've never known him personally and you've been getting through life and you've been kind of rolling up your sleeves and you're doing the best you can. Uh, you, you, know, you, you may have a family, you may have a job, you may just trying to get through life and you're managing and, and yet it, it, it's just all on you. And you know you stumble and you fall and you know you're not perfect and you know you've sinned. But what I want to do is to wear on you, to allow God's Holy Spirit to impress upon you the weight and the consequence of what it means to live apart from the grace of a holy God. And I have the same question for you that Jesus asked. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus looks out over the cities. And there's Chorazin, and there's Bethsaida, and there's Capernaum. And he's been there. And he's done miracles that attest that he is who he says he's going to be. And he's proclaimed himself as the Savior. And yet they reject him, they turn their back on him, and he, he pronounces woes to them. And then he looks at those who are listening to him and he says, are you tired aren't you tired aren't you weary aren't you heavy laden come unto me I'll give you rest do you remember the passage come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden I will give you rest you can take my yoke upon you my yoke is easy my burden is light you'll find rest for your souls and if you're here and you've never come to the place where you just said I'm tired I'm fed up I pray God brings you to that place but I pray that the Holy Spirit just wakes up in you this awareness of what he's accomplished for you and you will respond by just coming to him and saying I'm tired I give up I surrender I surrender all I give myself to you and watch what he does he washes he cleanses he restores and he makes new now what about us as believers what does sin do? It breaks our fellowship with God, a holy God. It it, it 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 hampers what he desires to accomplish within us. It grieves his Holy Spirit. It is a detriment to his witness. And I need to tell you something. As a father loves his child and punishes him, so God loves you. And if you're in sin, you can expect the discipline of a holy God. Now, granted. Not every problem and not every weight is a direct consequence of our rebellion against God. I understand that. Please, that's, we'll go there further later. But I do want you to know that when you're going through a difficult time, you need to say, God, what is the lesson? Is there an attitude? Is there a belief? Is there a behavior I need to confess and repent? But here's what I want to, want to settle on for those of us here who are saved. Are you in love with Christ? Are you pursuing a relationship with Him? He, he loves you. He has come. He left heaven and came and lived perfectly and went to the cross, died to pay the penalty for our sin. He was buried. He was resurrected, overcoming hell in the grave. He seated the right hand of his Father, and he has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us, to walk with us, that we can live a life walking with him, in relationship with him, knowing him. I think the message of Micah is clear. It applied to them. It certainly applies to us. As a believer, are you weary? <laughs> are you tired? Do you have this sense of estrangement from your Savior? Do you know what the answer is? Confess and repent. I agree. I'm wrong. And I come back to you today. Father, I want to thank you that you are a holy God. Holy, holy, holy. I thank you that you care for us so deeply that you give us the preservation of Micah's words so many years ago almost 3,000 years ago for what they were going through and how that it is such a picture of who you are and what we go through I thank you that you do not abandon us even though you allow us to experience the separation that sin brings father we do not want to be distant from you We don't want to be separated from you. Whoever is here this morning and has not come to you in repentance and faith and not been joined to you, born of your family, made one with you, I pray that today that you'll wake them up to their need and that they will come and find rest for their soul, find cleansing from their sin, find the joy and peace that comes from resting in you. For those of us who are believers, Help us to stop trifling with sin, to stop playing around with sin, to stop excusing and rationalizing it. Help us instead to recognize that a sin problem is always a heart problem and help us to address the concerns of our heart. Where are our affections? What are the things that we love? Why do we love them? Where are we putting our energy there? And convict us of sin. Grant us that cleansing that comes when we're faithful. You're faithful and just. And as we confess and acknowledge, you cleanse us. And that's an ongoing process for a believer to make our relationship with you stronger and stronger, increasingly more and more. All for your glory. Father, your love for us is amazing. Your grace is astounding. Cover us in your grace today.